I'm Amy Lattimore. And I'm Brian. We are co-founders of With Wellness, a wellness club for employees, where our mission is to create space for you to learn to care for yourself and those you love. Welcome to the Priorities Podcast. In a world filled with ongoing, high stress, and tough demands, how do we begin to prioritize? I mean, like, for real, prioritize who and what matters most. Throughout this podcast, we'll speak to everyone from expert practitioners and academics to everyday moms and dads. During each conversation, we'll look for observations, learnings, and insights to help us all to prioritize and deprioritize when and where we need to. And while we can't prioritize for each other, we can prioritize with each other. So with that, let's get into this episode. In this episode, we'll be talking with Francisco Galarte, Assistant Professor of American Studies and Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the University of New Mexico about what it looks like to celebrate one's gender identity and the obstacles that we as a society need to overcome. So let's jump in. Would love to kind of get things started with a little bit more insight into who Francisco is. Even more specifically, I know part of your identity, as you describe it, is transfronterizo. Am I pronouncing that improperly? No, I think it sounds great. Okay, awesome. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that means, about how you describe, how you, how you identify? Like, given someone someone who talks about gender identity, like, how do you, with the education and knowledge experience, world life experience that you have, how do you begin to articulate how you identify? Yeah, so transfronteriso is a term that for me really kind of encapsules both like my geopolitical location and commitments as someone who grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm -hmm. um, that's like the fronteriso part. And then trans is, reflects my identity as someone who identifies as trans and has that experience um, of growing up in the world. Um, and informs my kind of understanding of, you know, what my life was as a child and kind of thinking about what that experience was for me growing up. And then also, you know, the the growth from that and how living in the border of the States, it's always kind of moving and changing and thinking about myself as kind of in that location as well is where those two kind of come together, you know, like being trans is a place where you're, I think, consistently learning how to navigate the world in different types mm -hmm. of way in terms of thinking about gender and, of course, how that changes and also in relationship to race and racialization becomes really important to me too. And then also capitalism, as we kind of talked about a little bit. But for me, I don't think that trans people are the only ones who think about gender all the time. I just think that trans folks... Um, are often called upon to comment on kind of the materiality of what gender brings to how we might encounter the world and how we as individuals make that those experiences real in different types of ways, whether it's joyous or whether it's violent. But definitely, um, I think most of us are consistently navigating gender in different types of ways, but we don't always really speak to what that might look like. You said something that I thought was really interesting in terms of trans people not being the only ones who think about gender. And I think that's a really interesting perspective to have. And even calling myself out, I don't think I've honestly thought about my gender or the constructs around it until, uh, or at least consciously thought about it until probably 
recently in my adulthood. And so I guess I'm not really sure what the question here is, but just really would love for you to comment a little bit more in terms of like, there seems to have been, because of reality, because of the lived experience that a trans person may have, your interaction with gender seems to have been something that was a part of your upbringing in a much more conscious way. And so how do you navigate or how did you navigate those questions, particularly growing up in a Latinx community where I know there's a lot of like strong binaries of what's masculine, what's feminine, et cetera. So how did you navigate those different questions or occurrences that you were, experiences that you were having as it relates to your your gender? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things that for me, was always kind of on my mind, both as a child and like coming of age is masculinity and kind of what that was like and how I encountered it in different forms in my life. I think, you know, my father passed away about, I want to say five years ago now. So it's been a while, but it feels like it just happened. But, you know, he was someone who I really kind of admired in kind of the masculinity that he embodied. You know, he was someone who was very you know, emotional in the sense that he offered that kind of emotional caretaking, different types of ways that I didn't see often with other people in my life. And then masculinity or like masculine roles or what I was kind of understanding as masculine roles. I also saw it embodied in my grandmother and my mom to a certain extent in terms of like being kind of the head of the household in various types of ways and that alongside being the person who's supposed to reproduce and instill culture you know I didn't see that as something that was only the responsibility of like the feminine I saw that in like my dad and I valued that in that way but I also valued you know my grandmother and my mother as kind of the folks who instilled and reproduced that as well as other people in my life who were masculine. So masculinity for me, I always felt like it wasn't as constraining as the world that I encountered later as an adult or in adolescence, right? Like there was these moments in childhood, which I think for a lot of folks, not everybody has that experience that there's a lot of capaciousness and how we can make sense of our gender and kind of what that means. And so I think in adolescence, I began, and in young adulthood, I really began to encounter situations where there was a particular way to be masculine that just was completely outside of the box of what I understood masculinity to be. And so like the shape of masculinity that I was yearning for, wanting to embody, was not one that I was like, overtly encountering in the world or was one that was being devalued or, you know, punished in different types of ways. And so for me, and this is not to say that I wasn't also like, you know, punished as a child in some types of ways for moving outside the boundaries of masculinity, um, you know, femininity and that expectation of someone who was assigned female at birth in my as, as a child, but it wasn't to an extent that, you know, was there's not a lot of trauma around it, right, for me, in terms of the the way I was kind of being guided to embody femininity in different types of ways. Like it wasn't with these extreme kind of consequences that made me feel like that felt stifling. So for me, I, I think that's like that way that as young people, I think trans folks are really kind of making sense of what 
is really valued around masculinity and femininity. I mean, not speaking for everyone, but I think at a baseline, there's a way that there's a desire to navigate that and to explore that. And depending on the world that you live in and your circumstances, you may be given that freedom or you might be punished for that. And I think, you know, we're living in a time where we're also seeing a lot of anxiety around trans children specifically as well. So, you know, the time that I was coming of age is a very different one now where there's definitely vocabulary and resources, but, you know, legislative tactics are kind of mounting an attack on this um, particular experience, which is just a whole other level. Thank you for that, Francisco. Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of definition? So you mentioned a couple different words that I've used as vernacular in social settings that I'm not sure I actually know the definition. And if I do, the definition is, uh, it's, it's like California wellness speak. So when you talk about masculine or feminine, I typically have spoken about them over dinner and wine as energies. How do you talk to your students about definitions or these ideas, these concepts of masculine, feminine? And by the way, when you mentioned grandmother, mother, father, I started thinking about race too, because coming from the Black community, my mom was a single mom for a bit. I know Amy's mom was a single mom. And so how gender and identity sort of intersect with race is also a very interesting sort of conversation. So can you speak to those things, like some maybe some lay the groundwork for some definitions and how you talk to your students? And then number two, maybe speak a little bit to how race sort of plays into this and maybe makes it a bit more nuanced or dare I say complicated for uh, folks coming from brown communities, uh, black communities. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I love the California wellness speak and talking about masculine and feminine energies. You know, it's definitely like the my generation as well, right? Like we talk about masculinity and femininity being detached from like the body embodiment in different types of ways in the sense that, you know, when I talk to my students and we're just beginning to talk about sex as a category, so sex is a biological category and its relationship to gender, that's when we begin to bring in masculinity and femininity. So, you know, I think most folks, or maybe not even anymore, I don't know, it might be outdated in terms of like how folks are thinking about or defining, you know, things like sex and gender is, you know, we start with my students and we begin with, you know, that moment at birth where there's that enunciation of it's a boy, it's a girl, that's kind of that institutional biological fact that is given by the medical community, right? And we trust the medical community to give us those reliable kind of concrete scientific categories, right, of male and female. And so from that particular moment, you know, there's this way that that is determinant, right? That sex that you're assigned is supposed to determine this larger trajectory of your gender, which is how you are kind of representing um, male or female. Um, and then there's, you know, masculinity and femininity are the two attributes, right? They're supposed to be connected to this biological fact within us, right? So like masculinity and femininity are also almost in some ways supposed to be innate, right? Like, and if they're not innate, mother or father or parents, whoever is like, you know, responsible for bringing you up, right, is supposed to be the benefactor that's supposed to teach you how to make sense of the world. And so I think for like, we're talking about 
the intersection of race, right? I think that there are various forms of, you know, masculinity and femininity that are off the bat, you know, hyper visible, right? And devalued for what they represent in terms of like expectations or ideas or beliefs that we have around black and brown families, right? Like, especially with this larger history and trajectory of the sustained criminalization and targeting of, you know, black and brown bodies in various ways, both by, you know, the police and those kind of institutions, but also the medical community, right? Like, you know, one thing that my students never really kind of can wrap their head around is, you know, one, you know, the for the ongoing forced sterilization of black and brown women um, that's part of the history of the U.S., the experimentation that was done on primarily, you know, black bodies, both during slavery and afterwards, right? Like, is, and that's a part of the project of creating sex and gender to, you know, use these bodies as uh, ways to kind of make sense and create these categories that, you know, then lead to a particular kind of criminalization, hypersexualization, and kind of commodification of these communities. So masculinity and femininity becomes tied to these processes, I think, of consumption, right? So like people can consume black and brown culture, but at the same time, not value these individuals, right? And not have a sustained like desire to improve the world so that everyone can flourish. So, you know, we can extract from the culture, but not necessarily, you know, invest in these communities and recognize the, the historical hierarchy hierarchies and, you know, also just neglect of these communities and a, a purposeful, willful neglect. Yes. I mean, that's, that's a whole sermon, Francisco, and I want to come back to that. I mean, I think the thing that came up for me is maybe right before we started recording, we were talking about empire. And I guess I'd love your meditation on the systemic, because oftentimes when we talk about, and I think maybe the discussion around identity and gender, sexual sort of identities and constructs really centers on the human, which I think is amazing. In some ways, I love to start there because this is at the end of the day about humanity. And and that's, you know, humans are complex and nuanced and hard to understand. And, and that sort of takes empathy. It takes education and listening for people to sort of really embrace each other. I also think there is this other piece of this, which is around understanding the systems that exist and empires that exist that create inertia around cultural change. There are policies that are in place that create this inertia where humans are leading the way and maybe love is outpacing, cultural conversation is outpacing our, our political conversation. So can you talk to us a little bit about when we say empire, maybe when you talk to your students about empire, and then I break that down into the systems that make empire, what are the systems that are sort of reinforcing our, our sort of slowness to change, and then actually maybe highlight some positive things, maybe some things that academia is a, a system in and of itself that is, is problematic in some ways, but you're there and you're able to maybe share knowledge and be in connection with the next generation in ways that actually facilitates change. So can you talk about, I hate to create a binary here, but do you know essentially sort of this, this dilemma that I think we, we collectively face? Yeah, I mean, I think to start like, you know, at the systems 
and kind of the what is informing our, our slowness i think it's just how quickly capitalism forces us to adapt right like both as consumers but also like as working right like so how can i increase my productivity to at the material level right make more money right improve my life for myself and my families but then also like the faster we work the faster the system catches up and we are just pushed right to our there's a continual desire or a way that capitalism i think pushes us to push our boundaries and to go faster and faster and faster and there's not really a threshold there's not a threshold in which the system is going to say you know stop everyone's kind of at their maximum so you know let's stop here right let's chill for a minute it's like no let's let technology can kind of come in and make and complement that which is to say that i think our consumption and the way that folks some folks love to work i think some people love to work and i think other people like need to work right and so those are two different things right loving to do it and needing to do it and the way that that, that there's a sustained stratification between those two right like if you love what you do or you just have to do and then you know where is there space in between those two and so like i think the cultural transformation is slow because i mean we're really just trying to move and kind of keep up with either i think for the most part for black and brown communities a lot of folks it's keeping up with that need right like put food on the table have shelter you know provide in different types of ways and then also want to consume also for pleasure too right like i think that there are i think we're complicated as human beings right i think that we can be conscious of the way in which we are moving at a speed or a pace that is like untenable that is like just pushing us to our max but then also not necessarily really having time to think about like what is it that i am consuming that might have a consequence for somebody else or you know how can i not take this as purely like consumption and entertainment but really kind of think about what this what music or like a film or like clothing like you know what are the you know who's at the other end of that right and i think there's a space for both like the the joys and the pitfalls there right like so for me you know i could never afford to go see bad bunny but i mean i love the work that he does right like enjoy the music i think as a cultural project he does a lot of really kind of important work but then you ask yourself is who who is in the place to be able to have time to really kind of excavate the work that is being done aside from like the pleasure that the beats give right or the space that it enables right like on the weekends or on your drive home or whatever that might mean for you so i think that there's a way that our lives are just so fast paced that even cultural workers that are really wanting to create a kind of critical conversation around things like gender or race and its relation to social justice and transformation right like there's a way that it can get lost but then at the same time i i'm okay with people experiencing pleasure from like a cultural text and it kind of opening up spaces in their life for me the question is you know how do we bring the both those two worlds together right where we can consume because i'm someone i love i like to shop i like to i like to look good you know i like all those things but i also really want to be able to do so in a way that 
is not at the expense of other people or that I can create a conversation around my own kind of consumption or what it is that I'm doing. And, and I think those are the possibilities, right? Like, I think there's a reason why TikTok and Reels on Instagram and these kind of short moments of like teaching things are really important, especially important for the generation right now, because you can do it like while you're doing something else or like if you need to, right? So that immediacy, I think it's as sad as it, as sad as it might be to some is really just kind of the pace that we are living at and in that moment. So I think people are making do with kind of how technology is transforming around the pace in which we have to live our lives in, in many different types of ways. That was kind of a ramble, but I hope that that kind of answered some of your questions. I don't, I don't know if I would describe it as a ramble, Francisco. I would describe it as a buffet. And if you know anything about how I grew up, I love buffets. So thank you for that. That was so good. Lots of richness there. You mentioned the idea of kind of particularly for certain communities, particularly those who are on the margins, kind of being at a space where they're, they're trying to survive, right? So where they are, a lot of the consumption that's happening is often at the expense of another group of people. But then you also mentioned this idea of pleasure and how do you do that in a way that creates more of a virtuous cycle versus a vicious cycle within the community. So talk to me a little bit about when you kind of span out or take a a wider lens at this idea of pleasure, this idea of joy, this idea of kind of wholeness and and happiness, what for you are some of the things that are bringing you joy as it relates to this conversation, to gender identity, to kind of where we are in the world? I know there's a lot of things happening that can bring a lot of sadness, but for you, yeah, I would really be interested in understanding kind of what joy looks like for you and even more, more specifically, what does joy look like for you within this particular conversation, within this particular topic? I think that's an excellent question just because I I think that we don't talk about what brings us joy and when we do, or even pleasure, I I think Mm -hmm. that when we do, we feel kind of guilty about it. And so for Mm -hmm. me, what really brings me joy, I think if I dial it in at a very kind of basic level, it is learning really honestly. Like I just always have to consume something like to learn like I, I love to learn something new every day and for me that is in like listening to podcasts right or reading articles or even in my own kind of deep dive into like a maker of a specific type of clothes or brand right like that's just shopping right it's like where did that come from you know what i mean like who's the producer what's the history so even in what I consume, I'm always just trying to learn a little bit more about like where it came from and, and how I kind of encountered it. But for me, it's at that basic level. Learning does bring me pleasure. It's really kind of what moves me, propels me through my day. But also, you know, my relationship, my wife and I, we both have like a mutual interest in things like fashion and aesthetics. And so that's something that we do together, whether it's like, what's on your shopping list? What am I looking at? You know, like talking about that, what our style is. And so that really just kind of is a big part of our life together, which I really enjoy and is fulfilling for me. And so those are like the two things, you know, my relationship and its capacity to foster that. And even within that, you know, both the two of us are all, we're always talking about things like 
racialized masculinity and racialized femininity, right? And like how that is a part of our process in terms of what that style looks like for us. And then also kind of the historical discourses that we are kind of seeped in in relationship to that. And so, you know, we don't talk about it all the time, but, you know, we, that's a big part of our, our life together and, and something that I think we find fulfilling about each other. And, you know, of course, style and clothes, that's, that's tied to consumption. You know what I mean? Like it's tied to buying and being a consumer and, you know, things like that. But, you know, I think there's ways that we can fulfill the, our need to have things and then also to like find joy in appreciating them. And then also kind of finding the ways in which they might fit into. And this is like objects like, you know, clothes or hairstyles or makeup right? Like how those are a part of the project of the gender that we are kind of putting out into the world. And for those that are black and brown, that's also kind of a racialized gender, right? Like it's a way in which there's a pride and a um, a joy in, you know, being a brown man, a black man, a black woman, a brown woman, right? Like there's a way that we can signal that with our style and really kind of impact our, our worlds and our own kind of small microcosms of our worlds in that type of way. I love that you find joy in learning. To me, that is, I think that that's so beautiful because it's, I think a lot of the constructs that have been created have come out of a, a need for curiosity or a lack thereof of curiosity. And so just wondering, you know, the thought process of like, what if we all actually got much more joy out of learning, out of asking questions, out of doing a bit more digging to understand kind of the root of something as opposed to kind of what it looks like on the outside and how that would better position us as a society to be able to celebrate one another much more holistically. And so that that brought me a lot of joy to hear that and even to think about it in that way. So this idea of kind of celebrating gender identity as a priority, for you, what would that even look like? In an ideal world, what is the celebration of gender identity look like? I mean, I think at the most material and basic level, I think that means like accessibility to you know, both in through the law of folks able to kind of have the mechanisms available to them to change simple things like markers on birth certificates or like legal name change. And then at the more kind of nuanced level, it is like access to healthcare, access to shelter, right? Like really, and that is an investment in everybody, right? Like not only trans people, I think that, you know, a concerted investment to assuring that people have like their basic needs met, whether it's shelter or healthcare or clean water, right? Like that at a basic level is a, a celebration of gender identity at the level in which we're not kind of making determinations about who has access to what because of what they're choosing to do with their bodies, right? So that's kind of that piece, right? Like, you know, why single out a particular population who is changing the shape of their bodies because it's a necessity for them, right? Like it's a human need and recognizing that there is a, a need and a desire to do so and a desire to live and move through the world without encountering just kind of really non... So the barriers that kind of are put out there for specifically trans and gender non-conforming people, right, are barriers that are both like 
maintained through the law, right? And institutions like our legal system and our legislative system. But then there's a way that we all kind of really kind of make that real for people in like the day-to-day activities in which we might devalue someone who's trans, right? Like, and so for me, the two kind of go hand in hand. If I, as a trans person, am very much interested in bettering the life of everyone, right? Why does what I might do with my body or another trans person do with their body become kind of a public fact and be a mediating factor as to whether I deserve the same thing as everyone else? And so for me, the celebration of that is really kind of recognizing the ways in which we are just making assumptions about our bodies and embodiment when in fact, everyone is really kind of modifying or changing their bodies or unhappy with their bodies in various types of ways. But the moment in which it is related to hormones or gender affirming surgical procedures that trans people might use, that it becomes a question of like, let's scrutinize this, let's pathologize this community. And it's hard for me to understand or make sense of why we, um, why they're, I mean, I know why it happens, but you know, I, as a political project, I feel like there's just so many more things that we could spend our time doing that will just improve the life of everyone. But I mean, of course, that's not, not everyone believes that, right? I think that's powerful. And a lot of what Brian and I based with wellness on, which was this idea of kind of equitable design, right? And so if you think about the idea of if you can create something for those who are on the most margin, the most marginalized communities, then you could actually end up creating something for everyone. And so if you think about, to me, though, a lot of folks who are, who identify as folks who are on the margins or are part of those communities, there's so many things that really just point at the basic human right or needs that everyone should have. And so I think all that to say, like, I agree with you 100%. And I think that is a really interesting point in terms of how we should look at the celebration of gender identity, the celebration of identity, the celebration of humanity, even. Um, and just really, again, looking at looking at the individual, looking at the humanness of the individual as opposed to kind of the outwardness. I don't know if that I'm even making any sense, but as opposed to kind of like what how it might look similar or dissimilar to what you're used to, but more so looking at the individual. I have a couple more questions, and I know we're coming up on time, but I really would love to get your perspective on, as I alluded to earlier in the conversation, the concept of me thinking about my identity, thinking about my gender even as a woman, wasn't something that became a thought even, you know, at least consciously until I was much older. And Upon reflection, I actually see a lot of the influences that have a lot of things that I've done in the past that were direct impacts of gender, of things that, you know, were kind of put on me. And so for those who might be navigating their identity, who might be wanting to kind of redefine who they are or how they might 
I feel like I'm saying the same things, how they might identify, uh, whether it be with gender, whether it be with, you know, a whole host of other things. What are your thoughts or even kind of advice in terms of how they go about doing that more so from a a holistic way? So thinking about the, the mental side of it, the emotional side of it, as well as the physical and relational side of it for someone who might be looking to redefine what does it mean to be a woman or what does it mean to be a man or what does it mean to be even non-binary or even trans? What is, what is your perspective on a way that they can approach that that helps them holistically? I think for me as a, as a project and, and kind of this holistic way that I have kind of undertake this project for myself and wanting to consistently interrogate what masculinity is for me and like what that looks like what and also being like reflective on what that looked like maybe like five years ago 10 years ago mm-hmm. and how that changes I think that's a big part of it too like I think mm-hmm. for me that wasn't the first step that I took but like I think one of the first steps and when I was really trying to like think seriously about masculinity it was like investment in kind of all of the things that I thought went along with it right so that's clothes Right. That's also like ways of relating to others and having kind of gender just be really kind of central on your mind. Right. Whether it's like if we're talking about like norms or whatever. Right. Like it's opening doors or what, you know, is that something that I'm going to do? Is that something that people in my life want me to do? Right. Like, let me try this on. And then also really kind of be affirmative about letting the people know in my life that this is something that I'm trying to kind of figure out. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, give me that kind of latitude, right. If you're in my life, give me this latitude to kind of see how I'm exploring this. Right. And then I think that investment in being okay to like, kind of figure it out. Right. Like, again, we can't guarantee how the people react to us, but there's always kind of a learning experience there. And, And for me, you know, I did, you know, keep a journal or like, on the other side, did the deep dive into research around like, where did this come from, right? Like, where do these expectations come from? And for me, it's unique because I do this for a living, right? Like gender studies. And so that was more accessible to me, but like that seeking out of knowledge. And and I think that literacy is not only books, but it's also the people in our lives, right? So like, for me, I, I have been in the position where I was like, you know, this is a dumb question, but like, to a man in my life, right? I'd be like, well, why, why, why this, right? Like, why do you want to shake my hand? Why can't I hug you, right? Like, why is that kind of like, mm. you know, asking those questions, right? And I think for, I think most of us, we're not always kind of attuned to what that is um, in terms of like, you know, these kind of gendered norms. And for me, it was something I just really wanted to figure out for myself. Um, so the investment and then I think the reflection becomes a part mm-hmm. of it too, right? Like reflecting on times in my life that were just really kind of traumatic or difficult and really asking myself, like, what was I going through in that moment in terms of who I was in specific to like the expectations that were being placed upon me in terms of the gender that I was moving through in the world? And how did I kind of either step up or just utterly fail to like what's being put in front of me and I think like romantic relationships are a big part of it too right like the roles that we play and you know how we treat the people that we love in our life I think there's a way that gendered expectations really kind of become a part of that and can stifle the connections that we're trying to build with 
of the people that we love in our life, right? Mm -hmm. Like, are we acting in relationship to them because of what society expects us to do? Are we, and is that kind of our, what lets us off the hook, right? Like I did this because, you know, men are supposed to do this or, Mm -hmm. you know, women are supposed to react this way or am I characterizing you in this way because, you know, women are supposed to be quote unquote over emotional, whatever that might mean, Mm -hmm. right? Like all of these, there's a way that we, can kind of use these stereotypes and like ideals around masculinity and femininity to kind of let us off the hook from like having those kind of meaningful relationships with the people that we love. I think gender expectations and stereotypes really kind of are in the toxicity of those, all the bad things, right? Like about gender can make their way into our, you know, personal lives. And so for me, the big project of living holistically and, and enjoying, right, and and continuing to learn is about, you know, reflecting on, like, trying to not reproduce those horrible things with the people who are in my immediate orbits, right? Mm-hmm. At a structural level, that means something different, but at an interpersonal level and just really kind of, like, doing the work of, like, being present and showing up for the people in your life and kind of fostering that joy is about, I think, being really in, in tuned into how we might reproduce some of the things that we ourselves are, you know, not fully comfortable with or suffering suffering with in different types of ways, whether it's the expectations or the labels or kind of assumptions that are being put onto us as men or women or even, you know, non-binary folks, right? Like, there's all of the ways in which we perpetuate these ideas and beliefs and so what would it mean to try to actively not do that in your life and one of the easiest places to do it i think is with the people that you love uh, because you know these are the people that we should be kind of centering and prioritizing in various ways um, and having but having those conversations are also hard right i really want to talk about your book and really make sure that we we do it a bit of justice and because i think it's such a powerful, even just outlook or perspective that you're bringing to the conversation, which is, you know, a lot of the idea that a lot of brown voices within the community of transgender are kind of pushed to the side or not brought to the forefront. So talk to us about your book, a little bit of what was the motivation and what for those who are listening, what they can expect to get out of it when they pick it up and read it. Yeah, of course. You know, the book for me, as you mentioned, is this project of really kind of drawing our attention in Chicanx and Latinx communities, how trans individuals and persons have been relegated to a marginal position and done so in this way that an argument gets set up that to be of a trans person or to be of trans experience is not something that is natural, right, or kind of commonplace to Chicanx and Latinx culture, right? That it's kind of a, an invention of whiteness in some ways, or like an invention that comes by way of like technology, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, not to say that Chicanx and Latinx communities are like not are, are unmodern or whatever, but, you know, there's a way in which trans subjects have kind of been painted as kind of inconceivable, right? Like we can't believe that, you know, someone who is Chicanx or Latinx would want to be trans, right? Or would, you know, have that as mm. uh, as part of who they are. And so what I really wanted to 
do in the book is to bring to light the ways in which both how these trans subjects, Chiganx and Latinx subjects have existed. It's not a it's not a history per se, but it's rather a way for us to look up, look at how there is room within Chiganx and Latinx culture to think about trans persons, right? So like recognizing the fact that trans um, Latinx and Chiganx subjects like exist doesn't take away, right? from like the culture right or even take away from like racialized and feminine racialized masculinities and femininities right like so for me one of the the things that i like to very much highlight is that you know masculinity is is not a limited resource right there's so many ways in which to craft and to transform masculinity that can create different possibilities for lots of different folks, not even masculine folks. And so for me in the book, I really wanted to show the violences that happen when we deny, right, that these subjects are inconceivable. And so I grapple with some very kind of prominent uh, murders of, of two trans women, Angie Zabata and Guanarajo. Um, and I look at trans femininity as kind of like the central point of interrogation and to kind of show how they get represented as culpable for their deaths or for how their families as Chiganx and Latinx families get represented as kind of being part of the contributing factor to a kind of hate motivated crime because folks who are like non-racialized folks often kind of very much attach that narrative or idea to black and brown families, right? That there is a way in which that black and brown families can't do the correct work around like social reproduction of their children, right? So this is why there's criminality. This is why black and brown children are like more likely to be incarcerated, et cetera, right? Like it's blamed on the fam familial structure. And so I'm looking at that kind of perspective to think about how, you know, black and brown culture or brown culture in my book is very much painted as kind of part of the contributing factor to um, this type of trans racialized trans femininity that will be kind of leads to and their ultimate leads to their murder. And then the other half of the book is about trans masculinity, brown masculinity. And there I'm really kind of pointing to the fact that, you know, trans men are often not necessarily even kind of thought of as men because of the expectations around femininity that have constructed specifically Chicana, Chicano, Chicanx culture and the desire that, you know, both women are supposed to want to have children and reproduce, right? So the idea that a woman would want to deny themselves the opportunity to do that definitely is not something that's valued and was seen as was under attack during the 1990s and the emergence of Chicano feminism as a field. But really at the heart of this is for me to explore the question of, you know, what is brown transmasculinity? Has it existed? Um, in what ways has it been represented? And what can it teach us about masculinity? And at the end of the book, I, I talk a little bit about the question of the X, right? So within Chicanx and Latinx studies, which is, you know, some people don't want to use the X because they feel it's something that everyday people don't use and that the that the only academics use it. But for me, I'm asking us to question what it might mean to read with the X or for the X, which is to, you know, look at the ways in which 
gender nonconformity has ongoingly existed. So even though it's not like a term that has been in our vernacular, has been commonplace, there's certainly a way that people have embodied those categories in different types of ways uh, in terms of gender nonconformity. So, I mean, you know, to be really honest, it is, you know, kind of academic-y because it was my tenure book. But, you know, I, uh, the next project that I'm seeking to do scholarship that's more for a general audience and, you know, do some memoir and things like that. But, you know, the project is kind of affirming Brown trans life and giving us a vocabulary to think about that category. Wow. Amazing. And so many, it sounds extremely rich. The idea of victim blaming is what I heard. And again, like this idea of kind of redefining masculinity, redefining these genders in a way that actually probably, I kind of want to go as far as to say that that is redefining it in a way that is not impacted by empire, that is not impacted by colonialism, but again, more so impacted by the human experience. And so to me, that is really, really interesting. And again, the idea of just going back to the victim blaming piece of I'm I'm just reminded of like so many stories I've heard, particularly of uh, family members or folks that I know who identify as LGBTQ community, how a lot of them talk about their parents feeling like they've done something wrong and why the child ended up, you know, with a different identity than what they were raised as or should desire, the fact that they don't have that innate desire um, to do more masculine or feminine things. And so really, really, really interesting. Thank you so much, Francisco, for taking the time to chat with us. I really, really appreciate it. Very rich conversation. A lot for us to unpack, I think, even more. Would love to do maybe a part two of this conversation, uh, if that makes sense. Um, But thank you so much. Where can our audience find you? Where can they see you? Where can they follow you? Where can they get their book? How can they become uh, fan club members of Francisco? Yeah, so the book is available. Um, I encourage folks to buy it directly from the press, the University of Texas Press. And not because it's better for me or anything, but, you know, we want to give money directly to the presses mm-hmm. if we can so that we can keep publishing books. And then uh, on social media, I'm on Instagram. Uh, my handle is Dapper Chicano. And on Twitter, I am prof underscore Galarte. I've been really bad about social media lately, but I'm <laughs> trying to rebrand everything and hopefully we'll be a little bit more present but you know those are the the two main places in which i um, will post things about the book and upcoming talks and things awesome thank you so much francisco really appreciate the conversation thank you thank you thank you again for being here and for honoring us with your time this podcast is created by with wellness hosted by amy and brian Lattimore produced by Circle Audio, and music and graphics will be linked in the show notes below. Before we part ways, we offer you a moment of peace. Take this next 60 seconds to simply breathe.
As you go about your day, remember, you deserve to be prioritized.